in this episode of the Jock and Nerd Podcast. So I had been at the studio uh, almost a decade, 10 years at the Disney studio when the old man himself, Walt Disney, decided that I was not an animator, that I belonged in his story department. We are honored to be joined by animator, filmmaker, storyteller, and legit Disney legend, Floyd Norman. You're going to hear him tell stories about Walt Disney, his time at the company, art, his career, and some awesome behind-the-scenes tales of the making of a recently released documentary about his career, Floyd Norman, an animated life that you can watch right now everywhere. Let's get to it. It's the Jockey Nerd Podcast with your hosts, Anthony and Imran. Hello there, listener. Thanks for pressing play. Welcome to the Jock and Nerd Podcast. My name is Imran. My name's not Anthony. He's the Rock Boy. And he's the nerd. What's up, Rugs? Thanks for joining us. And uh, this, we have a great episode lined up for you right now. Rugs, as you imagine, every episode of the Jock and Nerd Podcast is someone's first episode, right? You never know who's coming yes. in. Yeah. Of course. So yeah. we're going to take a couple minutes right here to talk to the new listener, Thanks for joining the show. And yes, the show is called the Jock and Nerd Podcast, meaning there's usually a jock here, and that's my co-host, Anthony. Bro, do you even podcast? Who uh, couldn't make this one, but Rugboy, you are you were nice enough to fill in, and I can't thank you enough for Hey, this is a great episode to be on. Absolutely. So if you are a new listener, this is what happens. Usually once a week, we post a geekerific show. Geekerific. Uh, it's kind of like a weekly geekly digest of comic book TV and movie related news and reviews. And if you want to check out a sample of that, just check out the last show, episode 137, where we reviewed the whole season of Marvel's Luke Cage on Netflix. But in between those weekly shows, we hit you with some really great interviews. We, uh, we managed to talk to a lot of great people on the show, but this one listener takes the cake. Wouldn't you agree, Rugs? Oh my God. We're speaking to a legend here. It's amazing. You're going to hear an awesome conversation we had with Disney animator, filmmaker, storyteller, and official legend, Floyd Norman. Uh, now, you guys may not know the name Floyd Norman right away, but I guarantee you have seen his work. Listen, if you watched anything from Disney, you've pretty much seen his stuff. I mean, the list of stuff that he's worked on, you it's like... You want to go down the list, Imran? It's a lot. Look, listener, if you've seen any of these things, and this is just a portion of what Floyd has worked on, you know his work. Sleeping Beauty, The Jungle Book, Mary Poppins, Fat Albert, The Smurfs, Alvin and the Chipmunks, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Mulan, Toy Story 2, Monsters, Inc., and that's just scratching the surface. And not to mention all the Hanna-Barbera stuff that he did, and oh, just crazy. So Floyd started working at Disney in the late 50s, 1956, as a young man, as an in-betweener on Sleeping Beauty. And he's been working in the animation industry for the last six decades. He was the first African-American animator to be hired by Walt Disney. Wowie zowie! I mean, the man knew Walt Disney. He worked with him. Side by side in story meetings with Walt Disney. I don't know how many of people that can you say that you've met that have worked with Walt Disney. Uh, so how he ended up on the show, you're like, how did a little stupid show like this get Disney animation legend Floyd Norman? If you're asking yourself that question, that would be a very good question, right, Rugs? Because we couldn't believe it. 
No, it's it just as happenstance. Actually, we we have a little bit of a tie. Let's yes, see. here's so here's that storyline. One year ago, episode fifty four, we talked to a buddy of mine that I went to art school with, uh, filmmaker Eric Sharkey, who had just done this awesome documentary called Drew, the Man Behind the Poster, about awesome poster artist, movie poster artist Drew Struzan, uh, another guy whose name you might not know. But whose work you've seen. I mean, if you've seen Star Wars posters, Back to the Future, any of this, uh, you've seen. Amazing. Yeah, you've seen his work. So a year ago, we knew about this documentary. Eric's like, look, I'm working. My next thing is this documentary called Floyd Norman Animated Life. And this documentary tells the story of Floyd, who's 81 years old right now. And he goes through his whole life story, his his time with Disney, the twists and turns in his life. I mean, you have great people. You got John Lasseter in this movie. Sergio Argonis is in this movie. Whoopi Goldberg, Leonard Maltin uh, are all in this movie, uh, directed by Eric Sharkey and his buddy Michael Fiore. So we have to, before we start, we have to say super huge thanks to Eric Sharkey, Michael Fiore, Michael Fiore Films for the opportunity to chat with Floyd Norman. Uh, I want you to go check out all the great stuff they do at michaelfiorifilms.com. And if you check the show notes for this episode, jockandnerd.com slash 138, you will find links to everything we talked about. Uh, listener, you don't have to watch this documentary before you listen to this episode, but I guarantee after you hear Floyd, you're going to want to run, not walk. You're going to want to run to your nearest iTunes, Amazon, VOD place, or your Netflix. It's on Netflix. And watch this documentary. It's amazing. It's it's a great documentary, and uh, it's uh, hopefully it gets some kind of Oscar nomination this season. Listen, if you know anybody that's into animation, it's inspirational to watch this story unfold. It's inspirational to hear how this person had this focus in his life and went for it and achieved it and was instrumental in so many ways. And like, it's just a great life to learn about. If you want to be inspired, if you want to just know a little bit about the inside of what an animator's life is like. Or no, like little Disney tidbits culture. about Disney. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Look, I am so geek. Boner. I can't wait to share this conversation to you. Let's get to the legend himself, Mr. Floyd Norman. Mr. Floyd Norman, thank you so much for joining us on the Jock and Nerd podcast. This is an honor, sir. How are you? I am doing just fine. It's a pleasure to join you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> uh, we, uh, I, I mean, I appreciate you giving us this time. I know you've been busy. I kind of follow. I've been following the adventures of the the Floyd Norman and animated life movie through Eric Sharkey and Michael Fiore's uh, Facebook posts and your Facebook right. posts. Um, oh yes, and it's been quite a journey. Like we talked to, I actually went to art school with Eric Sharkey uh, in the nineties. So a year ago, oh, bye. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, a year ago. Yeah. We had talked to him and he would, he told us about this project and I've kind of been following this project ever since. And it's been just an amazing journey to watch this documentary. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. It's been an amazing journey for me to go through it. Uh, even though I'm a filmmaker myself, uh, I, I found this experience being on the other side of the camera, uh, really interesting. Yeah. Being the subject of a film. So I wanted to start there and ask you like when these guys came to, to approach you and they said, Hey, Mr. Norman, we're big fans. You're a, a Disney legend. We'd like to make a movie about your life. What went through your head? Well, you know, it, it, it wasn't all that surprising in the sense, being a filmmaker myself, 
uh, and the guy who's also produced documentaries myself, it, it was certainly a compliment when they requested to basically do my life and career. And I just thought, well, gee, if they really want to do it, uh, then have at it. And so I basically uh, opened my life to them and said, uh, my life is yours for the next two years. So, uh, you know, go for it. Wow, two years. Yeah, that is a long yeah. time because there are some great personal, candid, private moments. And you clearly get the feeling that they were, you know, you, you would let them in and you hung out with them. Uh, what, what, oh, yeah. Yeah, what is, uh, I haven't met Michael, but, uh, what, what, Eric is a great guy. What do you think about Eric Sharkey as director? Oh, they're, they're both great guys. And as a matter of fact, when we, we, I tell you, we spend a lot of time together because we've been out traveling the country and spending a lot of time, uh, in restaurants, hotel rooms, uh, we've all become like family now. Yeah. And of course that's not unusual for guys and gals who make motion pictures. We do become a family, you know, t to ourselves because you spend so much time together. You are so connected by the project and, and, and our lives just sort of intersect and we become one big happy family. So I basically, um, you know, embraced my, my colleagues, my filmmakers, and it's just really, it's been hard work to a degree, but uh, really they've done most of the work. I, I tell people that I'm the guy who just had to show up. <laughs> they, they really, they really did all the work. What did you think of the actual documentary when you, when you actually sat down and saw it for the first time, were you like, this is everything that I wanted them to say, or do you, how, what was your reaction? Well, that's really amazing because once again, being a filmmaker and I really wanted nothing to do with the film in that sense, I didn't want to do anything to influence the film, the filmmaking or the filmmakers. So I, uh, I just sort of went about my life as I would normally. And I, I really, it sounds kind of weird to say that, but, uh, we were lucky enough to have access to the Walt Disney studio where they followed me around. And for about a year, you know, <laughs> the better part of a year, they sort of followed me around. I mean, I'm including in my car at times <laughs> where I would have a cameraman, uh, in my, in my car as I drove from meeting to meeting at, at the Disney studio. And so, uh, the cameras were there in my home. Uh, when I went to my hometown of Santa Barbara, when I went to the Comic-Con in San Diego, when I visited the Walt Disney family museum in San Francisco, so, you know, the cameras were there and, uh, I didn't play to the camera or put on for the camera. I just went about my normal life and work, uh, with conversations and they captured all this on film. And so I knew that, uh, they were filming me, but in a way I was still able to kind of disengage yeah. and just let it happen. Plus you, you're a filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm a filmmaker too. So it didn't really bother me that much. So the cameras kind of faded away pretty quickly, probably to where, do you miss the cameras now? Do your daily life? You're like, Hey, somebody should have filmed that. This was great. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's really weird. You should say that because I, I almost felt I should have had cameras following me this past weekend Yeah, because we had so much fun and we had so many uh, wonderful moments. I wish somebody had captured it on film. But unfortunately, there was nobody filming, so there you go. <laughs> well, these days, in, <laughs> listen, this day and age, there's a camera on you all the time somewhere. You just may not know about yeah, it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, I think you're probably right. <laughs> I, I might have been filmed and didn't know it. <laughs> for, uh, for the listener, I, I cannot highly recommend this documentary, Floyd Norman and Animated Life, more. It is 
so wonderful and and so great insight into uh, animation and the culture at Disney. Uh, it's on Netflix. It has uh, it's you can get it on iTunes VOD. It's got a ninety two percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which ain't too shabby, sir. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I mean, I worked on Disney films that didn't get a rating. <laughs> that don't hurt that high. Wow! <laughs> and then, and then you get to be drawn by the great Drew Struzan on the poster. What yeah. is that like? That is so amazing. Drew is such a, a wonderful guy, such a generous guy. He's a guy who has done posters for George Lucas, yep. Steven Spielberg, and now he's he's done the poster for my movie. And boy, I can't think of a better compliment. I mean, it was such a such a, a wonderful thing. Drew actually is my neighbor here in Pasadena. Oh wow! So, oh wow! <laughs> he, he lives he lives down the street from me. So uh, we are we are neighbors as well as colleagues and friends. I need to move there immediately. Yeah, everybody cool lives out. All the great creatives apparently live around Floyd Norman's house. <laughs> just out she just renamed it like Legend Town. Yes, <laughs> Legend Town. Oh my! Well, you know, you know what happens. Pasadena is near uh, Hollywood. It's near Burbank, Glendale. Uh, a lot of the studios. So, if you work in the industry, if you live in Pasadena, you've got a short drive to work to get to Warner Brothers, Universal, Disney, uh, any number of studios and companies, uh, entertainment companies that are just you know down the road a piece. That's. I mean, if you want to be in the business, you got to live where the business is a little bit. That's right. Yeah, you bet. That's exactly it. I thought it was really interesting uh, when in the movie talking about your early uh, childhood and uh, how you just had the passion to draw, and the fact that Santa Barbara was this little creative hotspot bubble for artists, for musicians, for sculptors, filmmakers, and uh, yeah. how much did that help influence you or, or keep you motivated to just keep drawing ever since you were little? Oh, yeah. Well, it helped immensely. And, and that's why I made a point of uh, really talking about my hometown in the film, because unlike maybe a lot of cities across America, Santa Barbara was uh, a creative center where uh, novelists and writers, uh, composers and dancers and poets and screenwriters and actors were all living uh, and working, not so much working in Santa Barbara, but they lived in Santa Barbara because of the access to Hollywood, which is just 90 miles down the road. Yeah. So that gave us kids growing up in Santa Barbara the unique opportunity to be around professionals and to be encouraged by professionals. A lot of kids who were in my theater class in junior high school and high school went on to become uh, actors and actresses. Uh, guys that I went to school with became uh, screenwriters uh, or professional musicians. Uh, my high school teacher, my music teacher, was the brother of jazz legend Dave Brubeck. Wow. So I saw, I saw Dave Brubeck on a regular basis because whenever he came into town to visit his brother, you know, uh, you know there he was. And so, you know, nearby Montecito, which is just down the road from Santa Barbara, a lot of movie actors lived in Montecito. So it was not unusual to see a movie star walking down the street or in, or in the Vons Market shopping. So, so my childhood was different from most because I was just thrust into this uh, creative community and nourished by it and encouraged by it. So whenever kids talked about, I'm going to Hollywood or I'm going to New York, uh, the people said, "Hey, that's great, kid. Go for it." Yeah. No one ever said. No one ever said you're crazy. Why don't you get a real job? Right. <laughs> you know? 
Wow. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's what you would have heard had you grown up in, uh, in, in Minnesota or Ohio. Oh, they definitely. Say, kid, kid, go to, go to college and, 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 get, a, and get a degree and, and learn how to you know, get a real job so you can make a living. This, this Hollywood thing or this Broadway thing is, is crazy. But for all of us, uh, they told us, hey, that's terrific. You want to be a writer? You know, go for it. You want to be an actor? Go for it. And so that made my upbringing uh, somewhat unique. And it's so important in the creative endeavors to kind of take it seriously. And, you know, that happens to this day. I'm a son of Pakistani immigrant parents who and I'm a living a working artist. I've always I draw, I illustrate. I'm a graphic designer. But my parents always thought I was going to be a doctor or an engineer or that the art was a hobby. And uh, it, it was hard to get support. And, and continue your passion despite the fact that everyone around you thinks it's a joke. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. yeah. And I've always thought it's important to hang out with artists who are better than you because that is the only way you're yeah. going to get better. Yeah. That's true. That's very true. And, and I, I must say that uh, along the way uh, when I was a kid, there were a few people who thought, you want to work for Walt Disney? That it, it was like, is that a real job? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody thought of animation back then as a real job. I mean, it is today, and certainly there are a lot of kids who are eager to get into, you know, the major studios like DreamWorks and, and Blue Sky and Pixar and Disney. Now it's a real job, but back in the 1950s, this was hardly seen as anything you could make a living off of, and... Uh, Boy, oh boy, you better learn how to do something else so you can earn a a living. That is so interesting. It's interesting even in the 50s how huge Disney was, what a name it was. And uh, I've just, I always wondered what it, what people thought about Disney, you know, at 20 years in at the time. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, movie making back then, back in the 1950s, the public didn't really know much about filmmaking at all. I mean, yeah, they knew movie stars. And of course, everybody had their their favorite movie stars, Gregory Peck or or Joan Crawford, and you, you heard all of these names of the famous stars. But as for the rest of Hollywood, it was kind of a mystery. And so Hollywood just meant glamour and movie mm-hmm. stars, and people would listen to the Academy Awards on radio. Yeah. And I don't mean watch it on TV. Wow. I mean listen on radio. Because <laughs> that's, that's how I was introduced to the Academy Awards. It was not through television, because we didn't have a TV set. I listened to it on the radio and I thought, whoa, boy, wouldn't it be something to one day walk down that red carpet at the Oscars? Well, one day I did just that. Wow. And it was like a, a kid's dream coming true. You know, and I thought of myself like, you know, five or six years old thinking, boy, you know, if I could be in a Hollywood and walk down the red carpet with movie stars and then many years go by and here I am on the red carpet in Hollywood that's with amazing. movie stars. That's amazing. <laughs> it, it, it is. It's kind of surreal when you think about it, but it actually happened. Do you feel like any different since the movie has come out and people have gotten a chance to see it and see your story? And do you find that there's uh, people like coming up to you going, yeah, hey, I saw your movie in, 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 in a kind of a different light. They're looking at yeah. you almost as a celebrity. Yeah, you know, I don't see myself uh, any differently. I am, I must say, I am delighted that the people enjoy the film. Uh, That's what means a lot to me. Uh, One of the things Walt Disney taught me, he said, when you go to the movies, he says, you know, uh, let's say a Disney film that I had worked on. He said, don't watch the movie. Watch the audience. Watch the people. Watch Mm -hmm. the people. You're going to learn from them. 
And that was a very important thing that Walt told me many, many years ago. So when my movie was showing, and as we did the festival circuit, and we had our film being shown at film festivals, I love to stand outside and see people coming out of the theater. What were the looks on their faces? Were they looking depressed? Were they looking sad or sour? Or were they smiling? If they came out with a smile on their face, if they came out laughing, that was a very, very good sign. And so that's the thing that really encouraged me when our first few screenings, people came out of the theater and they were smiling. And I knew we were in a very good place. This thing, this documentary has, has won a bunch of awards. It was like best documentary at San Diego Comic-Con. And I think what's gr- great about this and the Drew Struzan documentary and what Eric Sharkey has kind of stumbled on is this working artist documentary, like similar to Drew's story. Your story is so inspirational and needs to be told. And uh, it's about an artist that everybody has seen their work, but they don't really know anything yeah. about them. Yeah, because we're as animation artists, we're pretty much in the background. We're right. we're sort of hidden away. We, we we work on these films, but nobody really knows us. And of course, that's not our intention, anyways, to be known. We want our work to be seen. That's what really matters. But as far as us being, uh, you know, celebrities, we never came into the business to do that or to be that. We wanted to do the work, and that's what uh, that's what puts a smile on our faces. And I tell that to people that whenever I work on a film, be it for Disney or Pixar, I love going to the theater and watch the audience and listen to the audience respond to what we put on the screen. Because really, that's what it's all about. I mean, we are not rocket scientists. We're not anything special. We're basically entertainers. And we give people uh, a couple of hours of fun and laughter in their lives that may be kind of mundane or, or, or uh, challenging. And so we give people a break, a relief where they can go into a darkened room and laugh and smile for a couple of hours. And that's our contribution as entertainers to make people happy, if only for a little while. So it gives me great joy in doing that. And so when we craft a motion picture, we're doing it so we can make people happy. It's a bit of celluloid magic is what it is. A little magic, a little yeah. pixie dust. <laughs> And it's yeah. the work of a lot of different people working yes. together too. It's not just That's one right. person, you know, it's just like, it's a whole, you know, I don't know how many artists work on movies, uh, probably hundreds, right? I would say. Hundreds. Exactly. Hundreds. Yeah. We had, we had 600 artists on sleeping beauty back in 1950. Wow. Wow. Unbelievable. 58. Yeah. 600 people. Yeah. The story goes that you, uh, that was your first job for Disney and you were an in-betweener, which, uh, maybe you could explain a little bit to, they kind of explain in the movie, but to the listener, what, uh, the grunt work of an in-betweener is exactly. Yeah. It's kind of a, a tedious task. It's a mundane task and yet it's one that's highly creative and, uh, not anybody can just come in and do it because it takes a lot of work to do a good in between. Animation is comprised of multiple drawings. Uh, all these drawings have to be drawn by the animator, but the animator can't draw every drawing because there are so many drawings in an animated scene. Sometimes a few dozen, sometimes a few hundred. You just never know. Well, the animator needs assistance to do the follow-up work, and that follow-up work is doing drawings in between other drawings. I mean, literally in between other drawings. And that's why these artists are called in-betweeners, because... That's what they're doing. They're putting a drawing in between two other drawings. 
And that's the process. And and it's a necessary process to make animation work, to make it flow, to make it smooth. So it's a highly skilled work, but it's also somewhat tedious, tedious, and it's also mundane. And you don't want to do it all your life yeah. because you really get tired. Yeah. But it, it is an entry-level position. Those who want to become animators one day have to go through this uh, entry-level position of being an in-betweener. So that's starting at the bottom. You know, you're on the bottom rung of the animation ladder. How many drawings is that, would you say, like a day you would have to do? Uh, well, you know what? That depends on the scene, and the scenes vary in length. We speak about it in animation terms as footage. That is, you might be doing an animated scene that's 12 feet or another scene that's 6 feet. Oh. Well, in those scenes will be multiple drawings, and those drawings could number a couple of dozen. Uh, a couple of dozen drawings, or maybe even 50 to 75 drawings. It's just whatever the scene requires. But whatever it is, those drawings have to be drawn by artists, and the animator cannot draw every drawing by him or herself. So that's why they have assistants who fill in all these additional drawings that are needed. Uh, Again, it's not a very creative job, but it is a very skilled job, and as animators, uh, we need someone to do that job. How do you maintain sanity uh, if you're in betweening <laughs> a lot? That's one question I had. <laughs> well, it's discipline. Yeah. Like everything else, you, you learn to do it. And you, uh, because it is kind of a mundane job, uh, eventually you sort, of, you sort of do it just by rote. Now, still paying careful attention because you cannot be sloppy in your work. Right. But you don't have to totally focus on it because you know it so well. Uh, There are some people who actually enjoy it, who like it, because it allows them to do other things while they're working. Like a lot of guys like to listen to the radio, Mm -hmm. or they like to play music, or or they like to, you know, have other things going on while they do their mundane task of in-between. So, uh, you know, some people, you know, actually kind of like it. It sounds kind of therapeutic, and I bet it tightens up your drawing chops real fast. It does, because keep in mind, you're drawing every day. And so because you are using those skills, you're becoming a better artist as you draw your in-betweens on a daily basis. And so, like I said, it is a a training ground for young animators, and it's a necessary one, because before you can move on to do the highly creative work, you've got to learn the basics, the fundamentals down at the bottom. So you literally work your way up. Now, as you move up through the ranks, what is your favorite job that you've ever done in the animation industry? Good question. (laughs) Well, I think my favorite job is, oddly enough, is the one job that I never even sought. (laughs) But isn't that the way it goes? Yes, you don't know. yeah. Yeah, my favorite job is being a storyteller. And when I came to the Walt Disney Studio, that was the last thing on my mind. Hmm. I didn't come there to be a storyteller. I came there to be an artist. I wanted to be an animator because I love the idea of moving drawings. And so, boy, oh boy, that's the job I wanted. So I had been at the studio almost a decade, 10 years at the Disney Studio, when the old man himself, Walt Disney, decided that I was not an animator that I belonged in his story department. Wow. This was this was a decision not made by myself. This was a decision that, that was made by somebody uh, a good deal more knowledgeable than myself. And, of course, that's why no one questioned my move to story. 
Because when Walt Disney made a decision, everybody simply said, yes, sir. Well, it says jump, you uh, say how high. They, that, that's exactly <laughs> it. That's exactly it. So when Walt Disney uh, told me I was going to be moving to the story department, the only answer you give to Walt is, uh, you know, uh, how soon do you want me to start? You know, that, that's <laughs> just amazing. Know. Were you, what was going through yeah. your head? Were you, were you a little bit scared, intimidated? Or were you excited? You're like, I, I'm, I think I could do this. I was more intimidated than, than excited. Uh, I thought, you know, seriously, I thought the studio had made a mistake. <laughs> I really thought, yeah, I really thought, uh, this was a, a real blunder because had I, had I been doing this job before, had I had a good deal of knowledge and experience in story, I could say, hey, great, they finally discovered me. They finally found out how talented I am. <laughs> but it wasn't that at all, because I wasn't even trying to get the job. I was literally put into the job by a very important person, and uh, that's where I remained uh, for the rest of my career. Did you like so it right off the bat? Uh not exactly, because, of course, right off the bat, I didn't know what I was doing, or I, I thought I didn't know what I was doing. So when you're put into a position like that, when you kind of have to do the job, you just start out and start doing it, because yeah. you don't have any option. I guess the option is to walk away, Right. but the boss has told you to get to work, so what do you do? You get to work. <laughs> and it says that you're doing it, and then you're like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be doing this. This is this is what I've been waiting for forever, to be able to tell a story and, and call the shots almost. Yeah, yeah. well, you, you kind of wait for uh, for validation, because you start out not knowing what you're doing. And I'll never forget when Vance Gary, who was my partner uh, on The Jungle Book, when we showed our first boards to Walt Disney, and Walt looks at the boards and he says, oh, that's more like it then you realize we are giving him what, what he wants. And that was a very, uh, that was a very big deal for me, uh, for a kid who had never worked in Walt's story department before to have been in a sense thrown into the deep end of the pool. Yes. To, to suddenly find my work, uh, gaining the approval of the old man himself of Walt Disney, the master storyteller. You're just like, I can't believe this is happening. He actually likes what we're doing. The best way to learn is to get thrown into the deep end. What What was a a story meeting? What are these story meetings like with Walt? Like I can imagine they must have been like just really nerve wracking. And they they were uh, they were um, pretty um, focused and uh, exciting. Uh, some might say exhilarating. Some might say terrifying. <laughs> uh, for me, uh, I often tell people when they ask me. What was it like to be in a meeting with Walt Disney? I just said, I, I kept my mouth shut. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say anything. I said, basically, what I did in a Walt Disney meeting was listen. Yeah. I just listened. I just listened to what the boss had to say. And I, I don't think I ever commented one time. As a matter of fact, I tried to continually shift and stay out of Walt's line of sight. <laughs> because if he saw me, I was I was terrified that he might ask me a question. Don't make eye contact. <laughs> Do not make eye that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Do not make eye contact because if he's if you make eye contact he might ask a question and then oh my gosh, now I've got to have the right answer. So so he yeah, just, I didn't say anything. He just really seems like a mythical figure, you know, when you talk about him. It's so great. Imagine imagine uh, a man like Walt Disney 
uh, he was in charge of a studio that employed hundreds of people. I mean, literally hundreds of people. When Walt Disney had a meeting, generally there were no more than a dozen people in the room, sometimes less than that, sometimes maybe a half a dozen people in the room. Now think about that. You're one of the people in that room. Yeah. And, that is and crazy. That, that is crazy because you think out of hundreds of people, of all the people sitting in a meeting with Walt Disney, why am I here? You know, <laughs> all the people who want to be in that, who would kill to be in that spot. He definitely believed in you though. <laughs> yeah. What, you know, all, all this really tells me is that Walt was a master at spotting talent, you know, regardless of who you were. And I'm not going to ask you the was, question yeah. that everybody asks you, you know, what was it like being the first African-American animator at Disney? Because in the movie and in interviews, I've heard you've stated it really well in the sense that basically, look, I just wanted to draw. And, well, somebody had to be first. Somebody had to be the first black guy to work there. He just happened to be the first black guy. But the talent, it was always your talent that got you forward. And the same the same with Walt Disney. What Walt saw was uh, talent uh, in people. Uh, it didn't matter who you were or, or what you were. Uh, if you had the ability to deliver what he needed, what he wanted, then you were in. He wasn't looking so much at you rather at what you could, you know, provide for him. If he thought you could do the job, then then he wanted you. If you couldn't do the job, then then you were out. But it was never uh I don't think Walt Disney ever really thought in terms of, well, I can't can't use him or I can't use her. Right. Because, uh, you know, he's the wrong color or she's, you know, I can't use her because she's a woman and not a man. No, if if you had if you could deliver the goods, uh you were in. One of the most important people at Disney during that time, and even before I got there, was the artist Mary Blair, mm -hmm. who was an incredible talent. Mary was just uh, an amazing artist and color stylist. She was a woman in a man's world. And yet, because Mary had this incredible ability to, to style and uh, color style the Walt Disney Pictures, Walt relied heavily on Mary Blair. And not because she was a woman, but because she was incredibly talented. The fact that she was a, a woman didn't mean anything right. because I, I want what she can bring to the table. I want that talent. So that's the way it worked at Disney, you know? I mean, he had incredible vision. Yeah. yeah. That, that, yeah that, that Disney magic. And you are like, I love that you are, you know, the, the kind of the one keystone that's carrying on this Disney magic from – you know, from Sleeping Beauty to Jungle Book and now to Pixar to Toy Story and Monsters, Inc. Uh, and you clearly see that old school Disney magic even in the 3D new school uh, animation yeah. world we live in. And I, I got a credit. That's got to be credit to you, man, because you still got to go back to the foundations of the, the, the Disney style of animation, right? You're still you're still dealing yeah. with your squashing and stretching and and, and <laughs> oh, gestures yeah. and the visual gags. Uh, that you've yeah. been responsible for. I wanted to know what are some of your inspirations for just that being able to frame those visual gags and 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 pull those out of your head. Like, where does that come from? Yeah, I think that comes from guys who just are. You know, it, it's just, it's it's a difficult thing to explain. It's almost for me, it's intuitive. Mm. Uh, people often say, uh, "Where do you get your sense of humor?" Yeah, and I have to honestly say, I don't know. It's just there. I don't really think about it. And I, I never try to analyze humor or analyze what's funny and what's not funny. I just seem to know 
intuitively what is funny and what isn't and, and what will make people laugh. Uh, and it's a real joy sometimes and knowing that I can connect with an audience. And sometimes I will test myself in that I'll have a number of gags in a motion picture and I'll go into the theater and I'll see if I can, uh, if my gags are going to land just right. And when I hear the audience laugh at certain points in the film or at certain gags that come up, I know that I'm right on target and that I'm, I'm hitting all the beats. And, and, and that's a very good feeling to have that because it, it, it gives me confidence in the work I'm doing. But again, it's just we do what we do because it's just inside us. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think there's a school that teaches humor. You know, I think I think people are, are either funny or they're not. It's kind of as simple as that. And so I just happen to be blessed with being one of the funny guys. And so uh, I tried to share that humor with the rest of the world. You're, you're on your blog. You have that whole page of cartoons and they're so great. Just they're so <laughs> lively and, and, and uh, you know, the quick, quick uh, fluid lines and they're really funny and, and biting. Like even the movie yeah. itself, I was surprised at how kind of <laughs> critical it was of Disney, but you seem to have a love hate relationship uh, yeah, with, yeah. with Disney. <laughs> Yeah, I know that that's really interesting. And people, we've often talked about this, that how I can take swipes at Disney and I can take swipes at the Disney management. But I think smart men, smart men and women know that deep down inside, this is all coming from from, uh, the foundation of love. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I care about you. I, I care about this company. I care about this company's legacy. I care about what this company means to people. And so when I take jabs at the Disney company or at Pixar or whoever else, I'm just having fun. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm, it, I'm just saying like, Hey, you know, no harm. I'm not, I'm not angry at you. I'm not mad at you. I'm not, I'm not thinking that you're a terrible person. I'm just poking fun at you. And, uh, I think most smart people are able to see that. And I did a ton of gags about our former CEO, Michael Eisner. Oh boy. <laughs> and I was, I, at times I was somewhat brutal as <laughs> Michael Eisner, but because I knew Michael could take it. I knew he was a man who was confident in himself. He was a rich guy. He was the head of the studio. He was the big boss. So he can take a joke. And I knew that Michael had a, a big ego. Yes. And I played to that. And I found that Michael was actually flattered by all of the, the, the jokes I drew about him. So much so that he started hiring me to do jokes for him or for if he had to give a speech. If Michael had to give a speech, I would do all the jokes for his speech. Wow. wow. He, he, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was not seen by the, by the public. Yeah. This was not stuff out to the public. This was inside stuff that Michael wanted to spice it up with a little humor. And so he said, boy, I need a funny guy get that guy who draws insulting cartoons about me because <laughs> you know <laughs> who better yeah. who better to do eggs so so yeah so i i spent my career uh making fun of everyone from walt disney to michael eisner and uh it, it's what i do and once again it's never done it never comes from uh, a mean-spirited attitude it always basically comes from love yeah and it I has think to people, yeah yeah it's evident that. yeah yeah it's evident yeah. Now you are, and this brings up the fact that you are kind of known as the troublemaker around at Disney. I want to know, 
Was there a, a, a gag or a stunt that maybe went too far that maybe you were like, oh, I think I pushed it or that really got you in trouble? <laughs> no, I, I can honestly say that uh, we've never truly gotten in trouble. Uh, it, with one exception, I think we got almost sort of in trouble and, and, and not with everybody, just by middle management. Back in the 1980s, uh, the Walt Disney Company had a company newsletter and I think it was called the uh, the Disney Newsreel or something like that. But it was internal. It was a company newsletter that was circulated among the Disney employees. You know, and, and nobody from the outside saw it because it was an, an internal newsletter. Well, one uh, April Fool's Day, we published a fake Disney newsletter <laughs> where we basically did you know jokes about the company and we revealed future Disney plans. Uh, one gag was that the that the studio was going to build a theme park in China. That was considered a hilarious joke. <laughs> well, today that joke that that joke has come true today. But back in the 1980s, that was considered an outrageous joke that uh, Disney would build a theme park in China. And so we made up all this bogus news and joked about the executives and 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 all of the things Disney was doing. And uh, the middle managers got really upset with us. And they demanded that we go around the studio and confiscate every newsletter so they could all be destroyed. Oh, wow. <laughs> It'd be funny if they went and found the newsletter and they found out all the things that you wrote were actually became true. You predicted the future. <laughs> yeah, Floyd. That's, that's very true. Yeah, very true. We actually predicted the future in our joke newsletter. Is there a yeah. Disney park in China? Like for like full? Yeah, there is. Of there course. is. And uh, there was yeah. Euro Disney. I don't know if that's still around. Oh, yes. Yeah. I joked about that too. I joked about uh, Euro Disney, and and uh, I, I had so much fun with uh, Disney. I guess it's called Disneyland Paris. Okay, yeah. But but I, I had so much fun uh, doing jokes about Disneyland Paris initially, even before the park opened. I think, and I had uh, I had like uh, Parisian hookers on Main Street, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and all kinds of you know all the jokes you can get out of France and Disney. You know, serving snails and just all kinds of things that, you know, I, I, I just use these things to play off of. And to me, I think it's hilarious. And it's not meant to be offensive. It's meant to be funny. Yes. And I think, I think Michael Eisner got that, that I, hey, I'm not, I'm not uh, beaten up on Disney. I'm just, I'm just laughing at Disney and just having fun uh, with gags, you know. And y- you give me a subject and I'll, uh, I'll take off uh, and do gags about it. You know, I remember... One thing I did, they said, uh, Walt Disney's going to open uh, Disneyland in Paris, and, I, and, and, I, and the tagline was, 50,000 Frenchmen can finally be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's so smart. It's, it's, like, it's good, self-deprecating, smart humor. It really is. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So it's just, it's just having fun. And, so, and I think that's why I never got into any real trouble with Disney, because they finally realized, okay, okay, it's just a gag, you know. You know, this is nothing serious. It is just a gag. And so going ballistic over a stupid gag is, is you know, it's not. You know, it's, I, I actually got into more trouble writing the Mickey Mouse comic strip. For yes, Disney. I was kind of, uh, I was wondering about yeah. that is what, what was, because from the movie, you kind of see that like Mickey's old comics, he was, he was kind of yeah. violent. He was kind of a dick uh, at certain times. Uh, yeah, Mickey was truly a—he was really a radical, 
in, in the old, uh, you know, comic strip back in the 1930s and 40s, he was a feisty, spunky little guy, and he was doing all kinds of things. But as the years went by, Mickey became more and more toned down and more and more suburban, where he turned into kind of an Ozzy Nelson. Yeah. And he just, was, he just wasn't fun anymore. So in the 1980s, uh, once again, it wasn't a job that I wanted, but I was selected to write the Mickey Mouse comic strip, mainly because my boss said, I don't have anybody else to write it. <laughs> that, was, that was the excuse. That was his big excuse. Nobody wants to do this. Harry, you want to do this? <laughs> I would have loved to have done that because you, you get a chance to put your name on something. And it's, and it's just by you, you know? Yeah, except that I never put my name on it because it always said Mickey Mouse by Walt Disney. Oh. So, so my name was never, ever on the strip. Oh, wow. Where were you yeah. taking Mickey in these strips that kind of uh, rubbed them the wrong way, maybe? Oh, oh certain gags. Uh, for, uh, okay, I'll give you one example. Uh, in one Mickey Mouse, I think it was a Sunday page I did, uh, Goofy had bought a uh, satellite dish. Oh. And uh, being goofy, he didn't. He was, you know, he's stupid. He didn't know what the satellite dish was for his TV set. He thought it was a bird bath, so he put it in his front yard, and and all the birds were, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. playing around and on the satellite dish, using it as the bird bath. Well, believe it or not, some satellite company <laughs> thought that thought that the Walt Disney Company was satirizing them. Oh no! And they they launched a lawsuit against the Disney Company. Because they claimed that Walt Disney was beating up on their satellite technology. Oh my God! Wow! So I was I was called I was literally called into Disney's legal department as I had been many times before, and they were saying, "What's the meaning of doing this gag about satellites? You know, satellite TV. Uh, what are you trying to say about satellite television?" And I'm saying, I'm not trying to say anything. <laughs> Don't you realize that the character's name is Goofy? <laughs> this, is, this is just a stupid gag. The guy's name is already Goofy. <laughs> There's no subtext here. Unbelievable. And so that was the thing that always got me you know, going, that people were always looking for subtext in the Disney gags. And there, there was no subtext. It was simply a stupid gag. That's hilarious. But somebody would, Always, they would always find a way to be offended by something in a Disney gag because they were convinced that Walt Disney was picking on them. That's just insane. Or make, or make it. <laughs> like you think people are touchy now. I know. You know? This, uh, <laughs> it's surprising. Some things don't change. They're like, hey, why are the birds shitting on this satellite? What are you trying to say to, yeah. about this? Yes, ex- <laughs> exactly. They, they, they're looking for subtext, and there isn't any. You know, there isn't any. It, <laughs> it's very progressive of you, first of all, in the 80s to even use a satellite. Like, who had satellite TV in the 80s? Like, that was even a thing? Oh, uh, yeah. A few people did. A few <laughs> people did. Also, yeah. I also think, like, when we overanalyze Shakespeare sometimes, I kind of feel like the same thing. I feel like, hey, maybe yeah. Will Shakespeare just meant this as a joke and we're reading and I've spent three hours in my high school English class and maybe he didn't intend all this. He's just writing stuff. Yeah. Exactly. He's just he's just having fun and writing stuff that amuses him. Yeah. And years later, we, we, we analyze it, and we're trying to find all of the hidden stuff that's in there. You know, that uh, what was he trying to say? You know, what was Shakespeare really trying to say? And maybe he wasn't trying to say anything. Nothing. It was a fart joke. That's funny. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's really funny how these things work out. 
Hey, Rug Boy. Wouldn't it be great since we're putting out all this content that our listeners could support us? Maybe we had some kind of like website or a way for them to do that? Rugs, that's a great idea. Give me one second. I'll be right back. Jock and Nerd. Okay, it's all set up, listener. Just visit jockandnerd.com slash Patreon. Wowie zowie. Patreon is our virtual tip jar where you can donate any amount of money either per month or a nice large sum all at once and on that patreon you get bonus content as imran mentioned but if we hit certain plateaus every month we improve our production quality we get better equipment we get on more platforms it only helps us so please get on to patreon.com slash jock and nerd or jock and slash patreon and support the show Jock-tastic. i hear change jingling in your pocket do it Trivia Geeks, the Unpredictable Game Show podcast is back with a brand new season. They've got a new host, new games, and a new day in time. But that's not all. Now you can download their companion app, Triv Now, and play along in real time. Watch Carrie on YouTube as she tries to convince her partner that his dark night hasn't risen in years. Listen on Diamond Club and Alpha Geek Radio, Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter and get all the latest updates and showtimes. Hey, what's up? It's Taylor Gray, the voice of Ezra Bridger on Star Wars Rebels, and you're listening to the Jock and Nerd Podcast. So your story after that, like this documentary, again, watch this documentary, your story after that, like you get fired from Disney shortly after that? Uh, Well, no, not shortly after that. I didn't get fired at that point until the early 90s when uh, our publishing department went through a major uh, overhaul. Ah. And that's nothing unusual because departments tend to do that every so many years anyway. It's just sort of the nature of the beast, uh, the way corporate America works. So my department and Disney Publishing uh, went through a management change and they brought in new vice presidents and a lot of the staff got let go. And so I was one of the guys who, who lost my job. Now, this was hardly a tragedy, even though I find this amusing that I was actually offered free therapy for <laughs> really <laughs> for the loss of my job. Yeah, I was I was offered therapy. I did, I don't need therapy because I lost my job. I've lost a job before, you know. This is not something that is so weird and strange and unusual. Like I lost my job. I need therapy. Nice of them know? to offer, I guess. It was nice of them, yeah. but I simply uh, went down the street to Walt Disney Feature Animation, yeah. where my, my buddy, a kid that I had hired years earlier, uh, a buddy named Gary Trousdale, was developing a motion picture called The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Ah. And I said, Gary, I think what you're doing is most unusual. I think this is a really strange idea to want to take Victor Hugo and do an animated cartoon musical. <laughs> but I said, what the heck? I think it's a weird idea, but let's do it anyway. And so I asked Gary to hire me on the Hunchback of Notre Dame, and he did, because he owed me a favor. <laughs> that's, wow. a, that's a good thing about, about hiring enough people, then they, they have to hire you in return. Uh, karma comes back around. Yeah, karma, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so Gary hired me to work on the Hunchback, and so I did that, and uh, that you know, and I thought I was just going to do one movie for Disney, but then that one movie was followed by another movie, Mulan, uh, about oh, the, wow. the yeah. Chinese girl yeah. who joins the army, and that was followed by another film and another. You know, and so you before you know it, another decade has passed. Yeah, 
as you've worked on film after film after film. And that's the way my career has gone. One thing leads to another. It's so amazing. Like the different eras of Disney that you have been a part of, like you talk about Mulan and, and Hunchback, how, like, I remember that part. Disney was really big. Like that was the most lovable hunchback you'd ever seen. Like talk about yeah, you know, falling yeah. in love with a hunchback creature. Like, it was great. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, it was a very interesting time. It was Disney under new management. Yes. Uh, at the time, you know, Eisner and Wells were still uh, the chiefs of Disney, and our, our bosses at animation were Peter Snyder and Tom Schumacher. And we had had a good run. Uh, animation had had a darn good run. Their films were, you know, making money, hit after hit after hit. The chairman of the film division was Jeffrey Katzenberg yes. until he had a falling out with his boss. And then he left with uh, to join Steven Spielberg and David Geffen and form DreamWorks. Yes. So it was a very exciting time. And uh, I even considered maybe going to DreamWorks because a lot of my pals did did that. But then I realized, you know, I'm not really a DreamWorks guy. I'm probably a Disney guy at heart. And so I might as well just stay right where I am. The one company that I did go to that wasn't a Disney company at the time was Pixar. Yes, let's get into that. Because this, I, this, I wanted yeah. to know in the late 90s when they were kind of like, hey, come over here. We could use you yeah. over here. What, what, were, right. what kind of challenges did you have moving from 2D to all of a sudden this newfangled crazy 3D animation that looks amazing? Well, that was no challenge at all in the sense that what I did at Disney uh, and what I did at Pixar was pretty much the same. Ah. Uh, the only thing that had changed were, were the tools, a different tool set. Mm-hmm. Now, instead of paints and brushes and pens and pencils, now digital technology. So only the tools had changed. The storytelling, the filmmaking was exactly the same. Sure. Yeah, I was doing the same job, essentially. What was the first experience that you had, like drawing on a tablet or or a, a Cintiq or something like that? Was that like a revelation for you or something that you were always kind of doing in the background besides doing traditional stuff? It wasn't foreign to me at all. Now, keep in mind, I might have been a little different from my colleagues, even though I was an old codger. I embraced digital technology, and I was one of the first guys to bring a computer into my office at Disney. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was one of the first, and I was one of the older guys, too. I wasn't like a young kid. Yeah. But I, I brought a Macintosh into Disney in the early 80s. Uh, Apple had just shipped their first Mac back in 1984. And uh, wow. it, wasn't, it yeah. wasn't much of a machine at that time because it was underpowered. It still used a floppy, uh, floppy disk. Right. It was really uh, you know, pretty rudimentary uh, machine. Couldn't do much at all. However, I knew that one day it would be able to do a lot more. So I was on board with digital technology. So by the time the technology, uh, and it took a while for the technology to mature, by the time we had gotten Cintiq tablets and styluses and you could actually draw into the computer, right. I, was all, I was all set to go. I simply had to wait for the technology to catch up with me yeah <laughs> I, I was i was wow. ready for it. I, yeah, I was ready for it it's just that the technology wasn't ready and so it was kind of clunky and clumsy but eventually they began to get it right and when they finally got it right so that i could pick up a stylus and draw into the computer yes well i was all ready to go because i saw this coming years earlier so 
for me, the transition from traditional to digital was an easy one because I was prepared for it. There's some people that can't even do that. Yes. Some people can't even Still, make that transition. Yeah. There, there are yeah, people who right. are clinging to their to their pencils and saying never. But so it's good <laughs> that you you made that transition love, and it was easy for you. I love that you embrace yeah. the technology and the, you probably you brought the first Mac into the Disney offices. That's actually pretty huge if you think about it now. And in terms of oh, yeah. Pixar has their Mac server farms running all the time. Like that is awesome. Oh yeah. Right, I think the year was probably 1985 or so when I brought my Mac in, and the Mac, the Macintosh uh, shipped in 1984, so oh, yeah. it was pretty. It was pretty soon after the original yeah. Macintosh had had uh, shipped, and so here I was using uh, the Mac at Disney. Now something else happened during that time, which was significant. If if, if you know your history, your your technology history. Uh, Steve Jobs was booted out of Apple yeah, <laughs> around yeah. the same time. Yeah, you know, and so uh, I think all of these connections were so weird that you know that here I embraced the Macintosh. Steve Jobs had been essentially uh, the co-founder of Apple gets booted out of the company, and so that whole thing was going on. And yet it was ironic when I finally went to work for Pixar in 1997. One of the first guys I see in the hallway up at Pixar was Steve Jobs. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the, guy, the guy, the guy who started it all, and yeah. it was almost like, you know, the circle was now complete. It's you know? surreal. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And here, here I am at Pixar. Here's Steve Jobs at Pixar because he owned the company, and here's Steve Jobs saying, "I'm never going back to Apple," and I did not believe him one bit. Man, all these things to fall into place, that's unbelievable. They're all falling into place, that's yeah. Crazy. And here I am uh, on the Pixar campus with Steve Jobs, and Steve is saying, I'm never, never going back to Apple. And, of course, naturally, he does yeah. go right back to Apple. A few years later, he goes back and saves the company. So just think about this. Steve Jobs and Walt Disney, you yes. you yes. rushed against both of those guys. That's amazing. Yeah. Right, right there. It is. Great. It is, yeah. Two two men from two different eras, yet two men two visionary exactly men. Yeah. yeah yeah visionaries, uh, uh, mercurial, uh, passionate, focused, driven, and a little bit crazy. Just and you got last you got Lasseter in there too, yes. and Paul Dini and all these other greats. Yeah oh yeah, all these other great guys that I had the opportunity to work with. So you know, it's just you're in this big stew with all of these incredible talents and and, uh, and with all of these innovators and leaders and and uh, to be a part of all that is is kind of mind boggling when you think about the people you connect with. I was up at Pixar. Uh, was it yesterday? Uh, no, day before yesterday. Yeah. I was up at Pixar, and and John La John Lasseter comes over and gives me a hug. You know, and I'm saying, how's it, how you how's it going, John? And Pete Doctor stops by because he's up. He's working on a new movie, and all of these guys who are doing all this great stuff. Uh, and then I, I get to have lunch uh, at, at a lunch table with a bunch of kids, uh, young storytellers, who are all could easily be the age of my grandchildren. <laughs> and here we are sitting around the table, talking story. And for me, as an old guy, it's a privilege to be with all these kids. And they look up to me because I'm like, you know, I'm the old man on the mountain now. I'm the old veteran. I'm I'm Gandalf. And, <laughs> and they're all yeah. they're all looking up to me, you know, for words of wisdom. But for me, it's such a joy to be surrounded by all of these young people who are going to make the films 
in the next decades that that audiences will enjoy. Yeah, I'm just so happy to be part of it. Do you how do you still work uh, digital versus traditional these days? Like, what what is your breakdown? Oh, I do both. Yeah. I do both. Uh, uh, you know, I, I I often tell people it, it's not a matter of one or the other. They're choices. They're options. You can work both. Uh, I literally during the day I switch back and forth from digital to analog. In other words, I'm sitting I'm sitting at my tablet drawing. Uh, into a computer with a stylus, I'll put the stylus down and I'll swivel over to my drawing table and pick up a paintbrush and start painting on paper. That's fantastic. It's you know? just a tool. So, it's just another so, tool. Yeah, you could. It's a tool. Yeah, yeah because you're you're using your creative energy. What tool you use? Does that really matter? It really doesn't because you you are being creative. So whether you're using a computer and a stylus or a pencil and a paintbrush. Same thing. Yeah. Just I, I think the undo button helps a lot, though. It's a lot, and it, it's less messy. <laughs> it's really less messy. Like, I don't have to clean up ink b- blots that I knock over and wipe up yeah, paint. Yeah, That's what I like about the yeah, digital. And, and, yeah, and, and you, don't spill, uh, you don't spill paint on your shirt, yeah, because when, yeah. when I'm painting, sometimes I, I remember I got a bunch of, uh, I had this beautiful new jacket. I just bought this new jacket, <laughs> and I got yellow paint on my jacket. Oh, no. Well, see, that would, that would not have happened had I been painting digitally. Yeah, you know, that's a, I wouldn't have got I wouldn't have gotten a drop of paint on my new jacket. I like analog those, art so. problems. <laughs> analog analog <laughs> art right. analog art problems. Speaking of creativity, yeah, the the moment where in the movie where you, you know you reveal Disney kind of forced you to retire at sixty five. I you know I was first of all shocked, but I've always thought that like I don't understand when artists retire because you don't ever stop being creative. You don't ever stop being an artist. The whole concept of retiring as an artist makes no sense to me. Yeah, it really it really doesn't make sense. And artists really don't retire, or they shouldn't retire. I don't know why any artist would ever want to retire. Because really, you're going to get better, technically. Yeah. You know? Of course. Yeah. Well, that's your whole being, is being, yeah. it, that, that's what makes you you. Yeah, it is. Now, but keep in mind, in a corporate setting, if you work in a studio that is essentially owned or run by a corporation, they look at things a little differently. Mm. They look at the balance sheet. They look at how much money you're earning uh, compared to your age and that kind of thing. And and uh, I understand this because it's pure economics. If they can take this older worker and move him or her out, bring in a young kid just out of college and pay him or her half the money yeah. you're paying this old guy, it just makes good economic sense to uh, retire the old guy and bring in the young kid. So I get it. You know, it's not like I don't understand what corporate America is doing. I just wish they wouldn't do it so often. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. So, you know. I love how you just, goes. you're like, you know what? I'm just going to hang out here. Well, that's fine. I don't work here. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that's that you have, true. you have a retirement card and it's still an employee card at Disney is so awesome. It is, it is, and and of course this all this whole thing started because I was hanging out at Disney. I mean, I really did not work there. I, I was coming into work every day. I would find an empty office and sit there and work there all day. What and did you I work on exactly? Oh well, at the time I started doing this, I was actually writing a book. Huh. Uh, I was writing a book for my publisher, Focal Press, had uh, engaged me to write a book about. The, Focal Press is very big in the educational market. They sell to a lot of colleges, universities, and art schools. 
And they thought a book from me, based on my experiences at Disney, would be something they could market very well in high schools and and, and universities. So I was writing a book for them. And I thought, well, what better place to write a book on animation than the Walt Disney Studio? So I grabbed an an empty office. I brought in my computer. I found another large uh, screen display that was just sort of sitting in the corner. So, you know, it wasn't being used. So I grabbed that and, and put it in my office. And, uh, you know, I, I just, it, it became my workplace. Here I was working huh. in a place that no longer, that no longer even employed me. <laughs> like, how ballsy is that? That's the ballsiest thing it, I've it, ever it, heard. Yeah. In truth, <laughs> Disney could have called, they could have called oh, security yeah. and, and had me hustle off the lot. Absolutely. It was entirely within their right. But they were yeah, cool. exactly, and they and they would have been right in doing so because I was no longer a Disney employee. But because I didn't cause any trouble for them, they allowed me to just hang out until I began doing work for them. And then, believe it or not, I was actually working on Disney projects as a freelancer or a consultant. Yeah. So now I had a little more reason to be there, although they still could have told me to leave because <laughs> HR says that consultants are not really supposed to be working on site. So anyway, I, I still could have been booted off the lot with the, with the company being totally justified in doing so. I mean, you know, but anyway, yeah, they miss the Floyd Norman energy. Like you can't not have a Floyd Norman yeah. around. That's now, right. I'm, they would have missed, they would have missed that. Yeah. <laughs> one, one question is when they were filming the documentary, were you rehired by Disney or, or were you still kind of freelancing at that point? Because now, not only are you going in there and you're not working there, but now you have a camera crew in there. <laughs> well, that was a very interesting situation, and it's amazing how we were just lucky. Uh, the luck was on our side. We began filming at the Walt Disney Studio totally undercover. <laughs> we should not have been. Yeah, we should not have been filming. Disney could have called security and said, these guys don't belong here. They shouldn't be filming here. Get them off the lot. But no, we were audacious. We just kept on filming, and we went over to the. We left our campus over in Glendale and went over to the Disney Studio in Burbank because I said we should really film on the Burbank Studio lot because that really is the uh, that's ground zero for yeah. Walt Disney. That's yeah. where that's where everything is. And so we began shooting over there uh, once again, totally unauthorized. But one of our camera crew guys was wearing a shirt that said uh, Lucasfilm or Industrial Light Magic. Yeah. Now, at the time, Disney had just acquired Lucasfilm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so when people saw us filming and the guys wearing Lucasfilm T-shirts, they automatically assumed, oh, these guys must be here well, they work from here. <laughs> Lucasfilm. And they're probably shooting something for George Lucas. Wow. And so clearly all of this is legit. So we'll just leave them alone. Wow. That's great. Because they, oh. yeah, isn't that amazing? That's so, awesome. But we were, we were still in violation of company policy. Now it gets even better because as things went along, some real Disney producers uh, needed to produce a segment for something they had in mind. And they met with our producers back in New York. We thought at the time what they wanted to do and what we were doing it kind of blended together and they thought, well, gee, maybe we could use some of this footage you guys are shooting. And so 
we had kind of an arrangement that we would shoot stuff and the Disney guys would get some of the stuff we were shooting to use in their film. Now, by doing that, now we had true access to the Walt Disney Studio lot because now it was official. Now we were shooting stuff for Walt Disney. And so now we had total access and it was, it was all above board. No longer did we have to hide under, you know, a cloak of cover. No longer did we have to pretend like we should be there. Now we, we could actually be there openly because Disney had given us uh, their approval to shoot on their property. So it's amazing how these things came together, how they all worked out, how because of this agreement with Disney, now we were no longer in violation of trespassing. So (laughs) it is amazing how things on this film just worked out together. And uh, the fact that I did this Dalmatian piece for Disney, they they were able to document that whole thing because they were able to come to the Disney lot to attend pitch meetings and film the whole thing. What a stroke of luck. Disney's permission. Yeah. yeah, it really was an incredible stroke of luck that we were able to shoot inside Disney with Disney's permission and get all, get all this stuff on film. That ordinarily would never have been allowed to happen. So if you guys watch this documentary, you're seeing something that had like a lot of things had to happen to, for this to coalesce. It oh, really was oh, a miracle. Stars have aligned yeah. for for what happens. Oh yeah. And I mean, this it is, is what, this one of the beauties of this documentary is that it is educational. You can show this to yeah. animation students, art students. It's inspirational yeah. in terms of your story and how you know your passion keeps you moving. And also, yeah. it's very redeeming for Disney because I walked away. It is. Thinking, it is. look, you Disney's feel, cool. You feel good about Disney. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing that I think is a real joy, uh, when you look at the cover of my uh, DVD and you see my face yeah. <laughs> on the cover, I like to remind people, I said, you know, like, look, everybody, you're going to see the story. You're going to watch a movie about a black man. Yeah. And this movie has absolutely nothing to do with race. Yeah. And I think, I think that's significant. Everybody wants to bring up the topic of what's it like being the first African-American at Disney. And I say, that's not what this, what this is about. This is not about the color of my skin. This is not about my race. This is not about a black man. This is about a young kid who comes to Disney, who gets a marvelous opportunity to work for Walt Disney. And this is my story. And it's not, a referendum on race. Yep. It's movie. Uh, it's about. It's a movie. It's a fun movie about my life and my career. And you can feel good about watching this documentary. I think one of the great things about art, okay, is yeah. that you can you can go to a museum and look at the piece of art and just and not care about who made the art and just look at the yeah. beauty of the art and and and, sure. and I think that that's that's a, a great thing. It's it's go, it transcends race. It transcends uh, everything. It does. Yeah. It does. And as an artist, I love, I love these. I think we need more documentaries on living artists like you and Drew Struzan. Uh, this is, these are stories people don't know. And, and it's a wide appeal, not just for artists, like especially this one. Also, I got to thank your wife for your style because your style is, <laughs> is dope is the only word I could use to you. You're like, if I could be half as stylish as you now, I would be a happy man. Like, I love your look, man. Uh, that's because my wife is an artist 
she's an artist herself, and she's a very good artist. And uh, when she met me, she realized that I needed help. And so <laughs> she decided she decided she was going to art direct me. Yeah, she gave you a redesign. <laughs> yeah, she she totally gave me a, a redesign. Yeah. I, you know, I I was totally uh, remodeled, and she she purchased all my clothes. She changed everything from my hair color to my glasses to what hat I would wear. Uh, I'm actually kind of her creation, you know. But then that that affects you as a person on a day-to-day basis eventually, slowly, doesn't it? You start to feel different. Yeah, Yeah, she wanted to change my style because she knew by changing my style, it would change me. And so she made me over. I mean, to talk about getting a makeover, (laughs) I, I got a total makeover. Well, I don't know how much they had to make over because you're clearly an amazing, you're just so mellow, easygoing, really funny. You have great stories. Uh, I could talk to you for hours, but uh, I, I want to ask you, is there a story that you haven't told yet that you still want to tell? You mean about my career? Or is there like a pro- a project or some kind of thing that you want to do? Like, do you want to make your own movie or uh, do you have a project that's still like untouched that's sitting there in the on the back burner that you always wanted to get to? Oh, yeah. There, there's a project that I could talk about. And I thought, well, maybe one day I'll write a book about it. Uh, it'll, it'll depend on how things shake out. Uh, we worked on a project back in the 1980s. Uh, shortly before I returned to Disney in the 80s. And it was a two-year project where we developed a motion picture. At least that was a plan. And this project, uh, led by myself and my partner, Leo, who also appears in the movie, Leo Sullivan. This project was kind of a strange, quirky, outside project because it was not a mainstream studio project. But we worked on it for two years. And it it was never completed, but it was a fascinating time, mainly because we brought into our studio a lot of young men and women who went on to carve out great careers for themselves. And to me, that is a a fascinating subject, not because it's so much about me or my partner, Leo, Mm. but because the kids we brought in went on to become animators, screenwriters, directors, art directors producers, and they were our kids that we mentored uh, right out of art school. And so we are so proud of them because they went on to do great things themselves. Oh, wow. That's a story that hasn't been told. And if I had say, well, Floyd, what's your next story, you know, that you'd like to tell? Yeah. It would be that that story, the story of a young studio that never did anything because <laughs> that's, that's the irony that we never really did anything. But what we did do was mentor yeah. a new generation of animation artists. And those boys and girls, uh, went on to become stars in their own right. And they're the ones out there now who are making movies and whose work you see on the big screen. So that's a story that's untold. That's oh, wow. my next story. That would yeah. make a if great. That would be a great tell, documentary. Yeah, I would, I would watch it. It would be. Yeah, yeah. It, it would be. I it's, think it's a it's a story worth telling. It's kind of like you were running a school, really, not a uh, a production company. It was a little internship yeah. school program. Well, you know, when you, when you work on a movie, it's very much like being in school because your young people are sitting down with old people, and uh, and you're learning. You're learning from the masters the, the same way I did when I went when I came to Disney as a young kid. I learned from the Disney veterans 
Yeah. And that's how I learned my stuff. So it's just the old guys and gals passing on their knowledge to a new generation of kids so they can then carry on. And then hopefully one day they too will pass on what they've learned to the next generation. And that's what keeps this business alive yeah. and vital. Yeah. Yeah. It's that magic you that magic that you have you know experienced from that needs to be passed on and needs to be preserved documented because oh, yeah. that's the key to, to everything Disney is you just there's that magical oh, yeah. Disney element to it yeah and you don't want it to be lost you know no. you don't you don't want to lose this because there is something special about it now I could be you know cynical because I've been around forever and I've seen this stuff again and again and again, but the last Monday night I was down at Disneyland and I watched the fireworks show, not fireworks show, the water show. Mm. It's a big, you know, it's a big light show with water and lights and gas and explosions and all of this stuff. And, and at the heart of it is it's Disney magic. It's Disney magic and people respond to it. And you realize there's something very special about this whole Disney thing that it reaches out and it touches people. And so you can't mock that. You can't, you can't uh, be cynical about that because it's, it's too warm and magical and fuzzy and, and it makes you feel good. And, and uh, you want to embrace that and you want to share that. And so uh, even though I've seen it a uh, hundred million times, I go back to still Disney. Makes smile. The, yeah. The magic is still there. I mean, the magic, even the, the magic, the designing yeah. of it's, you know, the thought and everything like the parade is meticulously designed. I went to art school yeah. with, you know, in the nineties at Pratt, we had a illustration teacher who uh, wore, had a studio down in Florida it, near, yeah. I think in the, in the park and he would design these parades, but he, he would have projects for his students where they would just go to a big crowded area in Disney. And he would tell his students, okay, you got 20 minutes, draw this giant crowd. And it was just an exercise in moving your arm, getting fluid, getting the lines down, getting the composition in one big yeah. kind of snapshot. Yeah, that's great. That's a great exercise. I, I've <laughs> always I wanted mean, to. Tr I, I've always wanted to try that. It sounds really hard. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, well, that's how artists grow and learn by by getting out there and and stretching themselves. Yeah. You know. Well, you you talk a lot about the Disney magic and, and and all the great things about Disney, but I just wonder: is there anything that outside of Disney that piques your interest that uh, that you're a fan of as well? Is there anything that you've seen in your lifetime or that you're looking at now that is is inspiring you? Well, well, you know, I love so many things. Uh, I, I've I've always had besides a love of art, uh, a love of music, and uh, I'm inspired by by music. Uh, and, and everything I go, I go from uh, concerts, you know, from symphony orchestras that I've heard play here in Los Angeles and in Pasadena to rock concerts because it's all music, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's all that good stuff. It's all creative. And no matter if it's what they call long hair music, I guess long hair, long, is long hair anymore. Yeah. Damn hippie. <laughs> yeah. You, you can be a rocker with long hair now. Yeah. yeah. But, but I, I think that's the other passion of mine is I was talking to Pete Doctor a couple of days ago up at Pixar. His father is a uh, musician and who taught music in the university back in the Midwest, uh, Dave Doctor. Uh, and, and Pete has two, two sisters who are professional musicians. 
And we all share this love of music. Pete plays double bass. Uh, I played violin. Oh, you play, you do play an instrument. That's awesome. I do, yeah. I, I played several when I was a kid. And once again, uh, this love of music is a part of my life. And uh, I'm grateful for it because I learned how to read music when I was a kid. And this comes in handy even now as a filmmaker because I can uh, sit down and read a musical score because I learned how to read music many, many years ago. And so I've always been very, I've always been close to composers when working on motion pictures. Uh, you know, not just the artists. I want to get to know the composer yeah. and the musicians who work on a film. And that's the other thing that's uh, kept me connected to to all of this stuff. Is It's not just... And I tell my students, you know, don't focus too narrowly. Uh, When it comes to learning, I said, learn about everything. Mm -hmm. You know, don't don't limit yourself. Don't think, oh, I'm an artist. I'm only going to learn about art. No, no. No, Everything everything affects that. Learn about, yeah, learn about science. If you're an artist, learn about music. If you're an artist, learn about, uh, you know, learn about dance. You know, learn about architecture. You know, learn, 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 absorb. All of this is going to inform you. All this is going to make you a better artist. I mean, I think the music thing is great. I also play guitar. And when I finally got kind of into uh, gypsy jazz and improv jazz, like you realize how that skill can be applied to everything in your life and how important it is to listen and go with the flow and improvise. That's right. That's right. All of these connections are meaningful. And and boy, they help you to whatever it is that you're doing. It helps you to become better at that. You know, it's really quite amazing uh, that that uh, knowledge or, or seeking knowledge is something that's so important. And uh, I find that when people get tired of learning, uh, man, they're, essentially their life is over. Yeah. Because, because learning is, is not something that should ever end. Right. We should always be learning. Even if we're 90 years old, you still need to educate yourself because you don't know it all. Absolutely. You'll always get better. Like when I play the guitar, I'm like, I'm never going to learn everything. And I'm always just going to keep getting better. There's no end to this. There's no end. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, and that's what makes it wonderful, you know? So I just wanted to ask, uh, just about what your thoughts on the state of animation today, is there still a place for traditional hand-drawn animation? Well, yeah. Because there are people still doing it. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, it's like vinyl <laughs> records. Still doing it. <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> that's very true. I think that's a good analogy. Uh, vinyl records would be a very good analogy. We have a small studio right here in Pasadena. Uh, a bunch of ex Disney guys, guys that I work with at Disney, uh, who are still doing hand drawn traditional animation. Nice. Now, while it's true, the mainstream studios like DreamWorks, Blue Sky, Pixar, Disney, they're almost on a total, you know, digital thing now. I mean, almost every every film that comes out of the mainstream studios is a digital film. Yeah. However, having said that, there are a lot of smaller studios that are still doing traditional hand-drawn animation. So the medium is still alive and well. Uh, it hasn't gone away, uh, nor do I think it's ever going to go away because I think artists love it. And I think audiences love it, too. Eventually, one of our mainstream studios is going to say, hey, wait a minute. Why don't we do this? Let's go back. Why don't we do this next movie hand-drawn? Yeah. Let's let's go back and and try it. And I think once audiences see a hand-drawn movie again, 
this old-fashioned thing called traditional hand-drawn is going to be new be all fresh. over again. Sure, sure. It'll be fresh, yeah, yeah. So it's going to happen one day. I still think that the aesthetic's got to be explored. I mean, if you're going to be an animator, you have to know that basic form of oh, animation, yeah. you know, making a flip yeah. book, making a, a series of animations and doing all the in-between yeah. stages. And if you just have a computer program that's doing it, you're not, you're missing out on the learning of actually how to do it. You are, you are that that's the foundation. And even now that I, I work in this digital realm, I still think in terms of film, I, uh, the film metaphor is is still in my brain. It's still the foundation. I, I, I see before me uh, an exposure sheet as though I was doing, you know, animation, you know, 50 years ago where I'm filling out my exposure sheet and I know how long uh, oh, a particular pose yeah. is wow. be. Yeah. I'm still thinking in terms of that film analogy, which I think it's very important for young students who learn to animate digitally. They should still be aware of yes. the way we used to make films because that's going to affect your animation timing and, and, the, and the sensibility of, of your work. You need that analog foundation before you can move on to digital. I know. So I, I agree. Think and it's very important. I mean, I think that. everything still starts with a pencil and a piece of paper, no matter what you're doing. Like, yeah, it really does. You want to start there. And I'm afraid a little bit that technology is going to make people cut corners because there's programs. Are you aware of this program, Adobe Animate, that it used to be Flash and Adobe bought it? Oh, is that what they call it now? Yes, <laughs> okay. it's called... I, I I remember Flash. Yes. I remember it. Yeah, yeah. Adobe absorbed it in their creative suite, and it's called Adobe Animate. But check this out. They have this crazy thing where you can – technically, you could do live animation. The Simpsons used yeah. this on a recent episode where the last three minutes of the show – basically, what it is is you set up a whole scene and triggers, and the, the mouth animation is programmed to work off of waveform – so one episode of The wow. Simpsons at the end, Homer was taking actual phone calls. Dan Castellaneta <laughs> is like, hello, is this thing working? And it's yeah. it's live animation. I was like, I never thought oh. I would see live animation, but they made it happen. But I'm afraid that that's, that's going to cause shortcuts in, in creation. <laughs> well, you know what? All, all, all of our tools, and, and of course, we're always uh, creating new tools, will will impact the medium. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm. I was given the opportunity to speak up at Apple at the Worldwide Developers Conference two years ago, where I was able to go on stage for an hour. Good heavens, I can't believe that I spoke for an hour <laughs> to uh, a bunch of computer nerds. And I, ha I say this with the greatest respect, because <laughs> there were you know, uh, hardware designers yeah. and software engineers and all of these smart people at Apple and I was talking to them about uh, creativity and innovation. And I was saying that Walt Disney was innovating back in the 1930s. Innovation is nothing new. It right. doesn't stop. It doesn't start. It started for Disney back in the 1930s or even in the 20s when he was doing the Alice comedies. And it went on as we moved through the 40s and the technology of the 50s and the 70s when we began to paint our films using, using the computer in the 80s and how we began to animate digitally in the 90s. Uh, technology and innovation is an ongoing thing. It's always going to be with us, and it's always going to be poo-pooed by, oh, they're going to use it for shortcuts, and mm -hmm. some people will. Yeah. But the medium will always be moving forward no matter what we do. It's just a natural evolution. 
and it's going to it's going to happen continually. You just have and to then, remember I mean, it's a tool. It's just always it's just it's another tool. tool. It's such a progressive a way to think. Yeah. 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 And one of the one of the kids in the audience up at Apple said, "Where do you think Disney animation is headed toward next? Mm-hmm. What's next?" And I said, "I said you tell me. That's what you guys are doing. Yep. You guys are are inventing the future." I said, "I've had my shot, but now I'm passing the baton to you. You're going to take us to that next level. I don't know what it's going to be, but you're going to figure it out. Yep. Speaking of the next generation and passing the baton, do you have any, any children that draw or is there like a legacy ha- going to happen or, is, or, or that's <laughs> it's, it's ends well, with you. My kids, my kids, uh, did not, uh, you know, have a passion for drawing and painting and, and that's okay because, uh, there are a lot of Disney artists whose sons and daughters became doctors and lawyers and, and, and did other things. So just because we're an artist doesn't mean our kids have to be artists. Now, some of my grandchildren like to draw and paint, and so maybe they'll pick up ah, nice. and carry on. Yeah. Where, where it's in the blood. Are. It's in the blood. Yeah, it's in the blood. Exactly, yeah. So, so I, I don't worry about it because I said, okay, my kids are not artists, but who knows, my grandchildren might very well be the next ones to, to follow in, 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 in grandpa's footsteps, so we'll have to see. I always, uh, no, I always love that continuing on. And I've always, you know, the, the argument is, you know, is it nature versus nurture when it comes to creative talent? Does it skip a generation? Like for me, my dad's side of the family, they could all draw. They all just had natural drawing ability, but none of them did anything with it. And I saw that and I was That's like, very true. That's was, very true. Yeah. Like, hey, I want to, I'm going to use this. Why are you guys using this as a gift that you have? Yeah. 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 A lot of people see drawing or painting as a hobby. They, yes. they honestly don't see it. As a you know, as a career, you know, they 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 look at artwork as something you do on a weekend to to relax. You know, uh, I don't understand okay. that <laughs> though, because yeah. this is you're given this incredible talent to create, to tell stories, yeah. to move people, to to bring out emotions, and you're like, this is a hobby to you. Well, no. It depends yeah, on it, yeah. it depends on if art gives you some kind of self esteem or sense of accomplishment. Like when you yeah. draw a picture and and you're proud of it. It makes you feel good and you want to draw more, you That's know, right. and, right. uh, and some people just draw and they don't have any kind of attachment to it and then yeah. they don't, they don't keep doing it. Huh. Yeah. 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 I guess it's that passion that artists have where they, they have to keep drawing. They can't stop drawing. Uh, it's just in their blood. And so, yeah, that's, that's the kind of thing you, you, uh. You either have it or you don't, yeah. I guess. Yeah. No, I guess you can't really uh, – it is nature. But, yeah, it's just this feeling of I have to produce. I just have to keep producing. It's what's keeping me alive. Oh, yeah. That's very true. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's For us, it's part of our life, you know? <laughs> yeah. it's. I mean, for me, I like – like I, I can relate. It's who you are. Like, this is uh, defining – Floyd, man, I can't thank you enough for all this time you've given us. You are a pleasure, and and you're just so laid back. And I just want to, oh, I want to hang out with you and have some coffee, have a beer. Oh. <laughs> well, thank you. It's kind of funny that uh, this uh, lazy Sunday afternoon, I'm actually working on a uh, comic story right now. See, always it producing. Like I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm always working on something, and so uh, we've got a new book that's coming out next year. Uh, I, I'm very excited about that. I, I honestly. I'm not allowed to talk about it because Disney wants to keep it under wraps. Oh, there's so, Disney know, again. That's Disney. <laughs> but again, it, it is, it's, their, it's their property, so they said, Floyd, you can't talk about it. 
But I can tell you this, that the book will be published next year. It'll be uh, revealed, <laughs> because Disney wants to reveal it. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be revealed at uh, D23 ah, next July yes. of 2017. And there'll be a new book for me and my, my collaborator. So we're very excited about that. I'm, I'm wrapping the book up right now. It'll be going to press soon. But you won't be able to see it until July of next year. What would you like to yeah. uh, promote to our listeners? Obviously, the movie, uh, Floyd Norman and Animated Live. Check it out on iTunes, yeah. Amazon, VOD, right. Netflix. Uh, what else would you like our listeners to check out? Well, gee, uh, there's probably some things that I haven't even started yet, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I honestly don't always know what's coming up next. Uh, I, I do know that our that our new book will be published next year. So we'll be looking for a new Floyd Norman book next year. Uh, and um, Will you be appearing you know, at any conventions or anything like that? More than likely, I probably will, uh, although I haven't made any arrangements just yet because uh, the movies kept me so busy. Yeah. In the next couple of weeks, I will be appearing uh, at CTN, the Creative Talent Network ah. Expo that we do every year in November. So we do that right here in Burbank, and all of the animation studios in the area participate. So there'll be artists and this, you know, they're from DreamWorks, from Disney, from Pixar, from everywhere, from Blue Sky, even wow. Blue Sky back. I need to move York, out there. Yeah, <laughs> even they're coming out. Yeah. So, so we're going to have a, a a big show here in the, in Burbank for three days. The show usually runs Friday, Saturday, Sunday, right here in Burbank, and there'll be a lot of artists. Uh, artists even travel here from Europe. Oh wow! So we might have a few few animators from Europe who'll be here in town. But uh, it's always exciting and a lot of fun. And uh, boy, we, we had a great panel last year when the Rats Nest uh, showed up. That is all of the uh, Disney artists who were looked upon as the, the bad boys back in the 1970s, ah. I guess. Guys like guys like Brad Bird and and, uh, and John Musker and, and uh, Henry Selleck and uh, all of these guys who went on to become uh, stars in animation. At one time, they were regarded as, as the bad boys of Disney. Nice. And their room, their room was actually called the Rat's Nest because <laughs> they were they were such a recalcitrant, you know, unruly group. But they all went on to become uh, successful uh, film stars, as you know, as filmmakers. So it's like the Rat Pack. So, so fun stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It was the animation Rat Pack. So uh, fun stuff like that happens at CTN, and of course, it's an opportunity for industry veterans to to mingle with uh students and and wannabes and animation hopefuls we all get together for those three days in burbank and uh for the kids they love it because they can meet their heroes for us old timers we can meet young kids eager to get into this business so you know it's it's a we have a great time it's always a lot of fun that's fantastic. I'm like jealous. I can't be there. I know. I can't, I can't imagine hanging out with all those people. I'll also put a link to your blog in the, the show notes for this episode, uh, as there's a lot oh, of great you. insight yeah. uh, to the, yeah. the, the culture and the industry in there. Right. right. I, I write the blog whenever I have the time. Sure. You know, I, I, used to, I used to try to do a, a daily blog post. I'm so busy doing jobs that I can't do it daily anymore, but I try to at least post something new every week. So, uh, yeah, so people can always check out the blog and see what I'm writing about. That's awesome. Uh, okay, I, don't, I really I will release you to your Sunday afternoon and 
Let you relax and slash get back to work while you're relaxing. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to oh, yeah. say that it's been an honor talking yes. to you. You're an amazing person. And uh, I'm going to show this documentary to as many people as I can and get them on the Floyd Norman train there. Well, they got they got to see yeah. all these accomplishments that you've gr- done and how you untold story that needs to be told. And I'm crossing my fingers. I want to see you guys on the stage at the Academy Awards accepting well, Oscar. Would that be something? That, yeah, that, that, would, that would be, be that amazing. Would, that would that would be a miracle. I can't believe that would whatever happen. But hey, you it know, might happen. Know. <laughs> so it's technically We're on the fans. it's on the short list, right, for to be considered for nomination. I believe. Well, we we are on the list. We haven't made the short list yet. Ah, but you're, uh, you're I think on the list. that's coming. Okay. We are on the list, and now we're hoping to make the short list, but we haven't made it yet. So I think it's going to happen. I think so too. You guys, you're winning. You know, you win. You see these movies that win these string of awards, and they at different festivals, and they usually end the whole run with an Oscar nomination. Yeah. So. Oh, well, I, yeah. oh, it's going to be. Uh, I it definitely deserves it. Sharky and Fury. Did an incredible job with yeah. this incredible story. They and, truly did, and, and and that would be a real joy to see these guys uh, pick up an Oscar. I, I can't think of anything more fulfilling than that. I mean, have so, you seen uh, Eric Sharkey's first movie, where 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 before the Drew Struzan movie? Oh yeah, yeah, we were talking about that just <laughs> over the weekend, and uh, yeah. <laughs> From where he came from to this, oh. like it has Adam West in it. Come on, like he went from Adam yeah, West. I know. <laughs> I know it's just, but you know, a young filmmaker has got to start somewhere. Yep, absolutely. So you, you got to make your bad movie before you make your great movie. Absolutely. So that, and he's got lots good. more. Yeah. This is a fantastic for artists, for, for just yeah. people looking for a good story. And if you love documentaries, yeah. check out That's Floyd right. Norman and animated life. Thank you so much, sir. This, I can't, I can't thank you enough. Like this has been, I was so geeked to talk to you. Oh. And it was everything I hoped for. You're just, yeah, awesome. it's an honor. It's, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And, and, and I tell you, my whole career has been my pleasure. So I'm just happy to share it with the rest of the world. And so. it comes across that Very way. inspiring. Yes. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. It's been great being with you. The Jock and Ned Podcast. Wow. Wow, Rugs. Let me tell you, when Anthony and I started this podcast, back in, way back in March of 15, Way back in the late spring, March 2015, I never imagined that we would get a chance to talk to an actual Disney legend. And that just happened. There's somebody that it was so cool that someone had to make a documentary about him. What And what a cool cat. Be honest. Were you a little you a little nervous, maybe? Uh, I was. I, to him? I usually always have something to say, but I had to kind of pick and choose my my things because I didn't know. If I was going to sound like an idiot in front of this guy, <laughs> I mean, I always sound like an idiot, but like, come on, like, you know, you don't want to be embarrass yourself in front, in front of Floyd Norman or this guy was such a, a class act, you know, a cool cat, the man you everyone. And I was a little bit nervous, too. But once you watch this documentary, Floyd Norman, an animated life on Netflix, iTunes, Amazon, you see how just easygoing and friendly he is. And he's just heard listener. He is exactly that person. Like I could have, we could have talked to him all night long and uh, he had such great stories and you could tell he's got tons more great stories. Well, I'm hoping that they go for the Oscar. I mean, they've been talking about this movie being on a list for the Oscars documentary. And if it wins, we will have had a second Oscar-winning person That's on this program. That's correct. Oh, I can't wait for that to happen. For your consideration, look, listener, if you know someone who uh, can sway the Oscar nominations, uh, push them towards this movie. 
Look, check out the show notes, jockandair.com slash 138. You will find links to Floyd's blog, his IMDb page, where you can see the movie, Michael Fiore Films. Uh, and again, thanks to Eric, Michael Fiore, Michael Fiore Films, uh, Erica, the, the PR girl who I emailed back and forth to set up this interview. He's just, it was, he's just so charming. It was so great. It was such an honor. And I still can't believe we actually talked to Floyd, the Floyd Norman. That was awesome. Another one in the books, dude. That's right. So, listener... This is it. Uh, thanks for listening. But there's a couple of things we need to tell you to do if you like the show. We have a fan club. It's very exciting. Just go to jockadere.com slash Patreon if you like what you heard. If you want to support the show, uh, you get bonus audio. So it's basically first responses from movies, like our instant reviews. We have like little things that we record just for the, the Patreon. We also have uh, the, the after part of the show where... We're kind of like just spitballing and stuff, and we're not really doing a show, but we're just hanging out. Yeah, and then if you support the show for a low monthly donation, it helps the maintenance costs here, and there will be a little bit of extra Floyd Norman audio. That will be in the post show at our fan club, jockinner.com slash Patreon. Also, if you like the show, subscribe to the show. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Player FM, Stitcher. Just visit jockinner.com slash review. To take you to the iTunes page, you can leave us a nice rating and reviewing. And finally, Rugs, what do we always tell the listener? Uh, they got to do the one thing. If anything, I want you to find a, a buddy who likes Disney. Everyone loves Disney. Find someone who's a Disney fanatic. Run up to them and give them one of these. Talking nerd. And then run away. And then when they come and find you and ask, hey, what was all, what was all that about? You can tell them to come listen to an awesome interview with Disney animation legend Floyd Norman. Tell a friend. Spread the geekery. Yeah, let everyone know about this podcast. If this is your first time hearing it and you liked it, spread it around. Disney, you know people who just are crazy Disney fans. Everybody knows one person. That one person who still, like, is into it and they're adults maybe and they don't even have kids. And they just love going to Disney and they love all things Disney. This is the show for them. This is also the show for anyone who just wants an inspirational story. He gave some great advice for young artists, for uh, uh, animation, and just in life in general. That we can all live by. Floyd's such a cool cat. <laughs> Should we tell them though that we kept the cursing and the and the ball jokes to a minimum? <laughs> we did. Oh, we, yeah. were, we were very respectful. It was usually yeah. the, this show is explicit, but uh, I didn't. It wasn't necessary. I just you know, I said <laughs> sh- I said shit once or twice. That, that was I had, <laughs> something had to go in there. Yeah, you had a couple. Of them. <laughs> it wasn't that bad though. It wasn't you and you, Rug Boy. You have behaved yourself very well. I can't thank you enough for joining me on the interview. No problem. I think I said balls once though. You did. You said that was ballsy, but that's fine. Yeah. He, I think he appreciated all that. Rugs, tell the listener where they can find you. You can find me on the interwebs or on your twitters at Really Rug Boy on Twitter. You could. Shout out at me. Send me a message. I usually uh, answer everyone back. I got nothing else to do. You need someone besides David Mobley to talk to on the Twitter, people. So uh, every day, fifty times a day, <laughs> this guy. I have one fan, one super fan. I'd like to get like two or three. Help the rugs out. Follow him on Twitter, and thank you, listener, for hanging out with us, checking out the Jock and Nerd podcast. My name is Imran, and my name is Rug Boy. He's the Rug Boy, and he's a nerd. And we'll hear you next time. Jockin' Nerd!